0: All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Um, I don't think I said this before, but I'm uh, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here, and uh, happy to be with you celebrating the Lord on Father's Day. Uh, before we get into our, our series, like I said, our, our um, like I've been saying the last couple weeks, our fiscal year is coming to an end. So when it comes to giving, we don't talk a lot about money at Hope, and it's probably to uh, detriment of my myself of just not talking about it enough, but. Uh, That being said, we are coming up to the end of our fiscal year. Our fiscal year ends June 30th, and so if you're visiting, that's okay, just check out. This is not for you, this is not for any, I don't want your money. Uh, This is not for you. This is for people who call Hope home, and so just want to give a quick update where we're at and talk about our goal. Um, And again, if you want to give, it's hopecc.com slash give, and then as I was thinking about that, Nolan, is it give or is it giving? Give, Give. okay, that's right. All right, see, look at that. I did something right this morning. Hopecc.com slash give. Um, and that's where we do everything online when it comes to, to giving. And so, again, uh, we are a church of three locations, and so there's a Hope Community Church downtown Minneapolis, there's a Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights, and then Hope Community Church Lowertown, which is us. And so we had a uh, large goal for the month of June, which was $360,000. 191,000 change have uh, already come in, and so the remaining goal, uh, just for the next two weeks, this week and next week, Will be one hundred sixty-eight thousand six hundred nine dollars and ninety-two cents. Um, none of our people give cents. I appreciate that. We have nice round numbers at Lower Town. Uh, okay, so our goal for Lower Town, our goal monthly goal, was thirty thousand dollars. Ten thousand one hundred dollars have come in, which means a remaining goal of nineteen thousand nine hundred. I know it seems like a lot, and it is a lot. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but when with with our powers combined, we are uh, we we can do this. Uh, and so God has been providing, and I know a lot of you have uh, been uh, giving clearly already. Uh, that's higher than what it normally is after two weeks in any given month. And so those of you who have uh, prayed about it, who maybe gave for the first time, thank you. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see those numbers. I don't want to see those numbers. Uh, but thank you for your generosity. And I'm, uh, I'm feeling very good about where we're at. Uh, again, as far as Lower Towns budget, we have underspent, and so we're, we're actually sitting really well here. Uh, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, so let me, let me go ahead and pray again this morning and just thank you uh, for your generosity, but also thank our Father uh, for his generosity. And so let's pray. Father, as I look at these numbers, I just am in awe of what you are doing uh, at Hope Community Church across all three locations, that you have showed yourself faithful uh, over and over again, time and time again, uh, that you have provided so many of us with, um, with jobs that are able to allow us to live generously uh, to be able to give out of an abundance that you have given us. And, and even if it's not just with our, our finances or our money, uh, but with our, our hearts and, and with our talents and our time that we're able to dedicate uh, and give back to you. And so I just pray that you'd continue to allow us to live generously and pray and think about uh, what we can do to give over these next couple of weeks as we finish up our financial year. And uh, yeah, God, we love you. We praise you for who you are. Into Christ's name, we pray. Amen. All right, we are in week three of kind of the summer series of Not Just Another Story. Again, we've been uh, preaching through the book of Romans, and we, were, we stopped at 20 weeks. We stopped at the end of chapter three, and we are taking a break from Romans, and we're starting here, and just taking a little summer thing called Not Just Another Story. We've been looking at different stories about Jesus, and if you grew up in the church, you might be a little familiar with these stories, um, but just saying, this isn't just another story. Let's, let's, let's look at this with refreshed eyes and not just... Be glazed over into this story about Jesus? And is there more going on here than just the story about Jesus? And so that is where we're at. The title of this week's sermon is The Desired Response. We're going to be specific. The main text today is Luke chapter 7, 31 through 35. We're going to get there at the very end. We're going to be doing a lot in all of Luke chapter 7. So if you're following along, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we will be all over the place in this chapter, and then we'll 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 land, in, hopefully, in Luke 7:31 through 35. And and as we've been doing these last couple of weeks. Um, because it's hard to just jump into these couple of verses without context, right? And so St. Augustine uh, in, in, in Northern Africa, when he was writing this back in, in the you know, second, third century, talked about how do we read our Bible? Well, we read it uh, mainly by understanding the context. And so if we just take a couple of verses and read it, uh, then we can miss the main point of it. And so we want to make sure that we understand the whole context around it. And that's why I say we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at uh, a lot of Luke chapter 7. And so before we, we jump into this though, Luke in, in Luke chapter 7, I'm going to be starting in verse 18. Jesus is going to be teaching this, this narrative here about Jesus. He's going to start with a guy named John, John the Baptist. John is Jesus's older cousin by just a couple months. J- J- Jesus's older cousin, and he is. Uh, Commanded to, and he has prophesied about in the Old Testament in in Malachi that some messenger is going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. That's John. John the Baptist comes and he starts teaching and preaching repentance, and that we need to be uh, uh, we need to believe. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes, "There it is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." John though was preaching and teaching, and he didn't like something that Herod did. This king that was in the area. And, and he gets himself in trouble and he gets himself arrested. And so he's in jail and he's awaiting his execution. Herod has this big party. His stepdaughter does the dance, does something. And Herod probably, I'm guessing in a half drunken stupor is like, that was amazing. I will give you half of anything in the kingdom. And she goes to her mom and is like, what do you want? And she's like, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And so he goes, she goes back and says, hey, stepdad, Herod, I want, I want John the Baptist's head. So that's what's happening. John the Baptist is in prison. And I've alluded to this passage this last couple of weeks. It's just kind of the way it it works. So uh, Luke chapter seven, starting verse 18, it says, John's disciples, John the Baptist, told him about all these things, all the things that Jesus has been doing. He's been healing people. He's been raising people from the dead. It's all these wild miracles that Jesus is doing. And he tells them about this. Calling two of them, his disciples, this is John the Baptist, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Like, are you really the Messiah? Because I'm in jail about to get my head cut off. Are you really the one or are you just my little cousin doing some magic tricks? What's going on? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. And he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor." And if you remember, if you've been here the last couple weeks, it's okay if you weren't, Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah that says, this is the year of Jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's favor. I am here and everything's about to change. But in that phrase, in that passage in Isaiah that Jesus reads, it says that he will set the captives free. And notice how when he's telling the disciples of John this same story, he's quoting the passage in Isaiah again. Tell him this is all that I'm doing, but he leaves out the phrase, I set the captives free. Why would he do that? Because Jesus, is he healing people physically? Yes, he's doing that. Is he physically setting people free? Yes, but there's so much more to Jesus than just physical healing or safety or all the different things that Jesus does. He wants spiritual life, spiritual revitalization. And he wants John to know that. So he's going to go on after this passage and talk a little bit more about John the Baptist. He's going to say, no one is greater than John. Like no one born of a woman, that's everybody ever, uh, is greater than John. John is the greatest. Then he he says, um, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So then we're going to pick up then in Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 29, says this. All the people... Right, So there's all these people gathered around hearing Jesus talk about John the Baptist and all these different things. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. So we're going to ask this question multiple times as we look through Luke chapter 7. Who are the people who respond to the forgiveness that Jesus offers and who are the people who reject him? I guess I kind of worded this poorly because everyone responds. Everyone is going to respond to Jesus. Either they're going to respond in a, in a favorable way, which is leaning into the forgiveness, or they're going to respond by rejecting Jesus. Those are the, the options. And so what is the desired response? On Friday uh, night, Angela and I, and actually Paul and Allison went as well, separately. We, we knew, I knew that the, Paul and Allison were going, but we didn't go together. But we went and saw this comedian, neighbor Gotsi. any neighbor Gotsi fans out there, he's You're welcome. If you haven't watched or heard neighbor Bargatze, look him up. He's he's phenomenal. He's he's I mean my favorite comedian by far. That's alive, and uh, he's great. I love the guy. And and anyways, he he gets up there and there's there's you know as a comedian there there are times I would imagine as you're as you're speaking and and any any public speaking I I think I probably have the same thing. When you say something, you you kind of have an expected response of the audience. Well, he was telling some stories about his parents. And he was talking about, he's like, I grew up in a house where it was you know, kind of old school and, and where, where my mom always washed, like always had to wash my dad's laundry. Okay, that was the, kind of this phrase that he said. And, and it wasn't meant to be funny. It wasn't, there was nothing, right? There was no desired response. But one person, one person goes, woo! Right, it was like, ooh, maybe that person shouldn't have cheered and clapped for that at that moment, right? And then he, he, he did a good job. I forget exactly what he said, but just kind of like, I think you thought that was the desired response, but I'm about to make fun of that. Okay, I'm about to make fun of this position, and there's this desired response that that I think is elicited here in this passage. Okay, so what is the desired response of the people who either accept the forgiveness or who reject him? The first one that we're going to see in Luke is the Roman centurion. We're going to go all the way back in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. There's a story that, that we're told here. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant, the centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of a century, in charge of 100 soldiers underneath him, whom his master uh, valued highly. So his servant was sick, his, or the servant... Uh, that his master, the centurion, valued highly, was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And this is what the Jewish elders say to Jesus. This man deserves to have you do this. This centurion deserves to have his servant healed. And I purposely, you know, didn't put the rest of that verse up there. Because what do you think their response would be? Is the Jewish leaders thinking he deserves, he's deserving of this healing because he has great faith in you. He knows that you can do this. That's not their response. Their their reasoning for thinking he deserves it is because he loves our nation, Israel, and has built our synagogue, right? He deserves it because he's done these great works for our people. That's why he deserves to have this. So Jesus went with them. And he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is uh, why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Then two men that had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What's the desired response, right? The the Jewish leaders think the desired response is good works. He deserves this because he's a good man. Jesus goes and he says, no, 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 he doesn't deserve anything. It's only out of my good grace that I'm going to heal his servant, and it's because of his faith. The faith is what is the desired response, The second person that I want to look at, who are the people who respond to the forgiveness of Jesus versus those who reject him? That there's what the passage calls a woman of the night, a prostitute. And so we're going to skip forward to the end of the chapter, Luke chapter seven, verse 44 through 50. I'm I'm skipping a little bit here just because I don't want to just read and read and read. But what's happening is Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house. He's a leader. His name is Simon. Goes to his house and he, he gets to his house and what would have been culturally good and acceptable and appropriate at a time is that the, the host, Simon, would get up and he would greet Jesus and they would hug one another. They might uh, a kiss, you know, kind of do the, do the cheek thing, do the, do the kiss thing. And then an honored guest would be anointed with oil. Uh, they would sit next to the host as a position of honor. Um, and, 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 and that doesn't happen. All right. He, he walks in. It simply says, when you look back at the story, it says, Jesus walked in and he sat down and reclined with Simon. Can you imagine? Just put this in, in our culture, right? We don't necessarily greet each other with a kiss or anything like that, and that's at least not in the United States. Uh, we don't anoint each other with oil <laughs> to show honor. That would be weird. I would imagine if I did that to you, and you came over, here is some canola oil. I guess that might be. It's the best thing I have right now. Or, or right, we just we just don't do that, right? And and and, and to say right. But imagine if I invited you over to my house today for dinner, for lunch, and you, and you opened the door. You, the door was open, right, just the glass door, and you can see myself and my family sitting around the table. And I say, hey, come on in. There's a seat down at the end for you. Like that, that's, It's just awkward. That's what's happened now, okay? So here's what happens. Jesus tells this parable, right? There's two people who are in debt. One owns $50, one owns $500. Neither of them could pay the debt but they're both forgiven their debt, who do you think's gonna love me more? Or who's gonna love the, this person who forgave the debt more? Simon's like, well, the one whose greater debt was paid. Jesus you like, you've, you've said well. And then this is what happens, he turns towards this woman because this woman comes into the scene and this is what happens. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, so he's looking at this woman at his feet and he turns to Simon, this Pharisee, this religious leader He says, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins, he doesn't excuse her lifestyle. He doesn't do it. He says, her sins, which are many, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little loves little and then Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven and the other guests began to say amongst themselves who is this who even forgives sins i i love there's a cs lewis tells the story about this is how you know jesus is god because he he claims to forgive sins who can do this and he, and he shares this story, C.S. Lewis, he's like, it's, it, it would be like if I'm on a, on a tram, on a bus, and I'm reading a newspaper, and there's a gentleman in front of me, and the, and the bus hits a bump, and someone trips and steps on this guy's foot, and me, a bystander, goes, oh, it's okay, I forgive you. What? What did that, per- you step on my foot? You can't, you can't forgive somebody of something they did to somebody else. And here, because Jesus is the one who's actually the greatest, who's offended because he is the creator, he is their God. He says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, again, I left it blank here on purpose. Jesus says to the woman, is it your acts of kindness? Why I forgive your sins? Is it your, your generosity, your giving of this perfume? Is it your tears? What is it that allows me to forgive your sins? And he says this, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, what is the desired response? It seems that we can clearly see in Luke chapter seven, it's faith, not works, which we've made very clear looking at the book of Romans. So now going back to what a pastor had already read, let's look at all the people. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus Words acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. John the Baptist comes in and he says, you need to be baptized, it's a baptism of repentance. Christianity, Christians, did not invent baptism. That is not a thing. We didn't invent baptism by immersion. Baptism by immersion has been going on for thousands of years before John the baptizer shows up. But what's the difference here? They hadn't been baptized by John. John preaches a baptism of repentance, of a heart change, a heart posture now that is towards God, versus, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They weren't, they didn't have a baptism of repentance. They had a ritualistic cleansing baptism. What is it? This is, again, you, you can look at this. This is just from Wikipedia, so maybe this is true. No, this is. It, it just was an easy copy-paste thing. So mikvah. Mikvah is a traditional, uh, it's a ritual cleansing. It is a bath. The, the mikvah is actually the, what we would call a, a baptismal. Uh, that's what they would call the, the mikvah. And and the bath is used for the purpose of ritual immersion in Judaism to achieve ritual purity. There was a million things, and you can go back and you you can read the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what they would call the Torah, and you can read that, and you can read about all kinds of ways and reasons why they needed to be baptized and be immersed in water for this ritualistic cleansing. Uh, Further on, on a different, if you click the link on, you know, What was I think I clicked on ritual immersion in Judaism and this was the thing. In Orthodox Judaism, these regulations are steadfastly adhered to. Consequently, the mikvah is central to an Orthodox Jewish community. Conservative Judaism also holds to the regulations. The existence of a mikvah, this baptismal, is considered so important that a Jewish community is required to construct a mikvah even before building a synagogue and must go to the extreme of selling Torah scrolls, selling their Bible, or even a synagogue sell their building if necessary to provide further funding for its construction. Right, this, is, this is essential to their religion, that I need to rinse myself, I need to wash myself before I can enter into this house of worship in the synagogue. And here Jesus is, the author Luke here is, is saying something very different here. Right, this is just an image of, of one of these from 1000 something uh, AD, right? And so we get into this. Okay, so what's happening? Again, Jesus is reiterating this idea. Is it faith? Is it a baptism of faith and repentance in the finished work of who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or is it this ritualistic duty of law? What is, again, that desired response? And so now, now we're going to get to our text for today. Luke chapter 7. 31 through 35 says this. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? And he answers this question. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. It seems a lot of commentaries are kind of, there's a lot of different understanding of this, but this might've been maybe a popular phrase that people said, a, a popular culture a thing that was going on at the time, or just the commonality of understanding how children work. Um, and, and, and so either one, we can look at this and what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, because kids, kids are wild, right? Kids will say what they wanna say when they wanna say it. They don't have a filter. They're just gonna be bluntly honest. But then they do things where they think because you laughed one time, they're gonna do it over and over and over and over again because it made you laugh once and now I'm gonna keep doing it, right? Uh, and that's why as, as a parent, when, somebody, when a kid does something else that is like inappropriate, you have to hide your face and not laugh about it because they're gonna keep doing it, right? And, and I, I have you know, one of my, Jack, he loves telling jokes, my four-year-old, and he'll tell a joke and if Henry says the punchline before he finishes, Jack loses his mind. Right? I, no, no, no. I have to tell the joke. And it's like, Jack, you just told that joke five times. You know what I mean? Like it's not, but you're going to laugh if I say it. And it's, it just doesn't work that way. And that's exactly this kind of imagery that Jesus is, is painting. What, what kind of people are we? Who are the people that we interact with, right? Uh, when I play this happy wedding song... How come people don't come out and dance, right? I just went to a wedding last night and they were playing this exact song and people were joyful and happy and dancing. How come you're not doing this now? I'm playing this dance for you, but nobody's dancing. And on the other side of it, okay, well, they're not dancing. Maybe we'll play a funeral song and people start mourning and wailing. How come, well, how, what, what is going on here? And Jesus is saying, um, right, that there's, you're gonna interact with people who are just never satisfied. On, on both sides, of this you, you, that Jesus is, is too holy He's too separate or he's, you're living in your freedom and no one's satisfied. Now we can't talk about what well, we're gonna get into in Romans in chapter four through seven and eight, well, eight and nine, of looking at what is this law of Christ? What does it mean to, to live in a certain way that is pleasing to God, that is uh, turning from sin, fighting sin, and yet living free and being free in Christ? One uh, commentary, this is Michael uh, Wilcock and his uh, commentary on Luke says this. The children's games mentioned in 732 illustrate the fact that these hearers complained equally when John refused to play weddings and when Jesus refused to play funerals. When they piped and asked for a message that was uh, undemanding and cheerful, John fasted and talked about sin. He was too gloomy. They wanted something brighter, but when they wailed and expected from the rabbi of Nazareth, Jesus, a solemn discussion on morals and religion, Jesus went to parties and talked about salvation. He was too exhilarating. They wanted something more proper. For the news of the kingdom is always new, unexpected, and upsetting. It will not fit in with men's preconceived ideas nor pander with their prejudices. It digs far deeper than their shallow understanding of the evils of Satan's kingdom and soars far higher than their low view of the glories of God's kingdom. I right, said, so "Which is it? What is the desired response? Do we do we do we bow in, in humble adoration? Do we do we do we cower in fear from a holy God, or we well Jesus is 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 my buddy, right? We get to hang out. We get to go to parties together. We get to go to these wedding feasts. Well, which is it? What's the desired response that we should have?" Jesus continues in verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man, now talking about himself, again, calling himself the Messiah, came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Another commentary, Trent Butler says this, The Pharisees saw the rigid Nazarite lifestyle of John and said it came from demons. Jesus came joining in all the celebrations and they labeled him a glutton and a drunkard who ran with the wrong crowd. Tax collectors, of course, represented the Roman government in taking away the resources of the people of Israel. Sinners represented the Israelites who ignored the Pharisees and scribes and lived apart from their rigid interpretation of the law. John prepared the way through repentance. So the people would be ready to stand in the presence of the Holy Messiah. Jesus brought the kingdom of God and did this, uh, and and this was reason for uh, constant celebration. The Pharisees did not see God working in either case and so rejected both. They would not prepare for or participate in God's kingdom. They were too busy being religious. I, I love that line. They were they were too busy obeying the law and rejecting the freedom of Christ, of by doing what they thought was right. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I've shared this before, but uh, when I played uh, football my senior year in, in college, we didn't win one game—not one. That's uh, my coach, Coach Price, in the middle there. Uh, I'm not in this picture. This was before like you know digital cameras. You know you had to do like film and stuff, and so there's not not a whole lot going. That was like, the only picture I could find of our team after our game. And this must have been what we called an alumni game. All the old guys would suit up and scrimmage the college guys, and it was murder. It was bad. It was not fun when you were the old guy. Um, you'd gained weight. And you used to play wide receiver. Now you've got to play offensive line. You know, it was one of those kind of things. And, uh, but after the game, every game, no matter what the score was, it would be 45 to zero. And we would all gather around underneath the scoreboard every game, no matter what the game was. And we would sing an old hymn called Victory in Jesus. And every time the word victory came, we'd, we'd stretch up our arms, our helmets, and we'd say victory. And this is, it. this is what it is. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. And then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me, Ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. What is this? The cleansing flood of his blood. Now, we talk about this wedding and a funeral. There's this wild thing that happens on the day of the cross that Jesus is both these things. He is both the victor and the one who allows the repentance that he wins the victory, this beautiful wedding celebration, but he does this and achieves this victory on the cross, at his funeral. It's both and. And so then at the end of this passage, there's this little tagline, verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. It's the same word, we talked about this, this word of justification that you have this word, but justification here isn't mean, um, it's, you're, you're saved through this. This is, this is a, a good interpretation of the NIV of, but wisdom is proved right. It's, it's, it's made visible, it's proved right by all her children, or by her fruit, by wisdom's fruit. R.C. Uh, uh, Sproul says, wisdom is justified or shown to be authentic by the fruit that it brings to bear. Last night, my neighbor was having a birthday party in I went over there and was hanging out, and they were doing some karaoke, and I sang Linkin Park. I'd never done that in my life; it was kind of fun. Uh, and uh, there was, there, it was it was a safe place, right? I will you will never hear me sing Linkin Park uh, ever, so don't don't get your hopes up. It was just the, the it was it was the time was right, uh, and and I'm at this party, and and everyone knows I'm a pastor. Everyone knows I'm a pastor at this party, and and I'm getting ready to go home, and one of my other neighbors, uh, who we've we've um, we've butt heads a few times. Uh, on religion he grew up in what he would uh clearly call a cult um was very hurt by the church and he he said hey brian what are you what are you preaching on tomorrow and and, and i get asked that pretty regularly and and my my the, the joke the running joke that i have with everybody is i always say jesus right it's just what are you preaching about well i'm jesus i'm preaching about jesus well, yeah, yeah, and then and then he and then he, and he pushed a little bit. Look, because he grew up in the church, and he's like, "But are you are you like going through a book or like what do you?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, it's a really good question." I said, "Well, yeah, I'm, I am preaching about Jesus." I said, "But I'm I'm, I'm talking about the centurion and this this woman and and how they respond in, in faith, not their not their works." And he goes, "Yeah, no, it's good because he's like, yeah, because you're saved by by faith." Like he he knows the stuff. He doesn't believe it. He's uh, atheist like yeah yeah cuz you, you would say they're saved by faith he's like but don't they don't you have to don't you have to prove it don't you kind of have to live a certain way i was like well you, you don't have to right but 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 to say i'm a christian and not live it is not good either and i and i and i share, and i said this i said this quote to him right which i've said many times here right your talk talks and your walk talks but your walk talks louder than your talk talks right and i was looking for an image of this online and it was wild how many people claim this as their own. Uh, they just change a word or two. They'll say, and your talk talks. And it's like, that's mine. I came up with this. It's like, you did, cut that out. It's not yours. Who knows whose it is, right? But when I said this to him, he literally goes like this. He goes, Phew. he's like, yeah. He's like, because you're saved by faith, but then you have, to, you have to show and demonstrate that you believe this stuff. And I was like, yeah, man, that's, that's exactly right, <laughs> right? That's, it, it just, I think he, he got it. I don't think he's a believer. I don't think he's a, a Christian. That didn't change his mind. But I think he, he longed for this. He wanted to see the good works of working out your faith, of what does it mean that I am a Christian? So what is this wisdom, though? This wisdom, what does wisdom mean? Way, a couple years ago, we went through Ephesians, and I shared these quotes from a gentleman, uh, Michael V. Fox, not Michael J. Fox, very different. Uh, he, this guy wrote a commentary on Proverbs. And we talk about wisdom. And what, is, what does it mean to be wise? How, how is this wisdom, this desired response, the right response here to Jesus by faith versus works, how do we respond rightly? I love what he says here. Wisdom isn't simply knowing what's good to do. It's not just the knowledge. It's not just knowing, okay, I don't get saved by works. It's by, by genuine faith. I, and I love what he says here. Wisdom is a disposition Of character, a configuration of knowledge, fears, expectations, and desires that enables one to identify the right path and to keep it. Wisdom means not only knowing but also desiring to do what's right. That's why when we talk about baptism, it is a baptism of repentance. Of yes, I'm going to say it, but I'm going to outwardly demonstrate there is a change in my life. I went from death. To life. I went from darkness to light. And it's not just I know what Jesus wants me to do, it's a complete disposition. It's a changing of clothes. It's going from death to light to life. And now I'm in this position and I look at Jesus and I go, Yes, this is awesome. You are amazing. Wisdom continuing here a configuration of the soul is a moral character and fostering moral character. It's no overstatement to say it is at all times the greatest goal of education. Right, to teach wisdom, not just information, knowledge. That doesn't help anybody. It is also the greatest challenge for moral character comes down to the desire to desire the right things. And how can we teach desire? And that's what Jesus gets at over and over again. It's not just act right do right be right work right it is by faith that we are changed and transformed and transfigured into his image to become more like him not out of obligation or duty but because we now get to and we want to that's a complete change in disposition that's what wisdom is and so how can we apply this just a couple questions here Who are the people who respond to the forgiveness of Jesus and who are the people that reject him, right? What's the desired response? Wisdom is proven right by those who respond by faith in Jesus Christ alone. What is the desired response when we are confronted with the holiness of Jesus? All right, because there's usually a spectrum. We're usually one way or the other and depending on the day and depending on the moment, I don't view the holiness of Jesus very high. I have a short, truncated vision of what the holiness of Jesus is. His response in that situation is that wisdom is proven right by those who respond by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It's faith in Christ. When I see the holiness and I'm confronted with his purity, my response should be to respond in faith that he is who he says he is, just like he did to John the Baptist. I am the Messiah. You don't need to doubt this. What is the desired response when we are confronted with the freedom that we have in Jesus? You can probably see where this is going, that wisdom is proven right by those who respond by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So let's not be too busy being religious to miss the freedom that we have in Christ. And so just in gospel application, what's your response? Is this just another story? Is this just, yeah, this is Jesus. We, I've heard these stories. I just read this in my, my devotions two weeks ago. I, I, like, I know this. I already know this stuff. But what's our response when we see Jesus, when we see him for who he is? Is it out of faith or is it out of obligation and duty? Are we too familiar with Jesus? Are we too familiar with his narrative to respond in faith? And then finally, where do you stand on this? Right? Where do you view Jesus? Do you see him as only the Holy One as this cosmic hammer out to punish me for all the wrong things that I've done? Or as the one who forgives me of my sins? What is, the, what is that song we just sang? Full atonement. Can it be? I mean, we think of, like can you think about it? I'm not a hand raiser. My hand almost went up in that one. Right? It is that full atonement. Can it be? Or do we see him as a friend of sinners and we just don't really care about my sin? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm forgiven. But then our walk doesn't talk. Luke chapter seven could not be more clear about faith alone and Jesus alone. From the centurion and his faith to the woman at the feet of Jesus to all the people that's described, it is clearly not by works. And so what is our heart posture towards Jesus when he says, how we should live or when he responds in a way that doesn't align with what we think God should do or how God should act or what God should say. What is our response? And it should be one out of faith to be more like Christ and to follow him more closely. And we get to, again, do this every week. We get to have communion. That we have these elements over here The bread, the wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. The juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us. For our sin, for our wrath, full atonement, can it be? And I think the next line of that, again, almost got me, almost got me. It is finished was his cry. The only reason why we get to take communion, why only reason why we get to pray to the God of the universe is because of the finished work of Christ. And we get to take these elements and remember that finished work of Christ on the cross. All it asks is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're like, yes, Jesus is my King. He is my only King. He is my God. He's my guy. Then I would love for you to partake of these elements. I would love to, to take these elements as a family meal to be able to see one another and say, yes, we are in this community of believers together. We are in this community of believers that, that struggle, that we're trying to fight sin, that we're doing this together, but hopefully we are we are responding out of faith, not out of works or obligation or duty. If that's you, again, love to have you do that. And if it's not you, then, then don't partake of these elements. Um, but maybe today could be the first day. Today could be your first day to have these elements saying, yeah, I, I want that kind of forgiveness that Jesus offers. I, I want to have this faith in Christ. I, I thought to be a Christian, but I had to do all these things and be a good person, and I'm not. No, you're not. You're right. Join the club. That's why we go to the finished work of Jesus and his good works, not ours. Let's pray, and the worship team's gonna come up. They're gonna sing uh, two more songs, and so feel free to grab these elements as you see fit. Pray, repent, uh, individually, corporately, and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again just for our time to be here this morning. I uh, thank you that your son, again, finished this work. I thank you that as we look at this, the faith of the centurion, the faith of this woman, the faith of all the people who, who had this baptism of repentance, of looking to the lamb who's gonna take away the sins of the world. That that would be our heart, that as we take these elements, that we would remember your finished work, that it's only by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. We love you. We thank you for all that you are doing and all you will do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.